Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 30th. I'm your reader, Dagna. We'll begin with the five-day forecast for the Siouxland area. Uh, today we'll have intervals of clouds and sun with a high of 39 and a low tonight of 25. Wednesday will be mostly sunny and milder with a high of 49 and a low of 30. Thursday will be turning cloudy, but it will still be uh, warm with a high of 48 and a low of 37. And then Friday we'll have uh, low clouds with a high of 51 and a low of 41. Saturday will have areas of low clouds and will be mild with a high of 49 and a low of 37. Today's mini editorial is written by Jim Anderson from Lamars and Jim writes, it seems that the Iowa legislature who has continually defunded public schools for years is now trying to micromanage the public school teachers First they banned books in the library and now are trying to mandate singing the national anthem daily. Again, this was written by Jim Anderson uh, from Lamar's. Our first story is headlined, How Safe is the Building? The Benson Building's owner wants the city council to take action on the former Sioux City Auditorium, the future home of Lamb Arts, and even suggested they consider tearing down the historic building if it can't be saved. The roof on the old auditorium at 625 Douglas Street began leaking in the fall of 2022 and gradually collapsed on the brick structure's west side. At last week's city council meeting, Benson Building developer Steve Nelson relayed to council members that in the last five years nothing has happened with the auditorium which is located across the street from his property. He said the building has deteriorated to a worse condition. Nelson told the journal at some point if that roof continues to collapse there's a chance that building could fall or a portion of it or a couple of the walls. Lamb Arts, a nonprofit professional non-equity theater, purchased the auditorium in 2017 with plans to renovate it into a regional theater. The auditorium, which was built in 1909, has been red tagged since June 2022, according to a placard affixed to the front door. The American Legion Post 64 once owned the building and operated as a Tamba ballroom. Most recently, the auditorium housed KCAU Studios. Photos taken by a journal photographer Thursday from the Benson Building, 705 Douglas Street, show an HVAC system precariously perched on the caved-in portion of the auditorium's roof. Sioux City Code Enforcement Manager Daryl Bullock said the structure has experienced some additional roof collapse. He said the building, which contains asbestos, was initially red-tagged due to dilapidation. The roof structure has a portion of it that has collapsed and it's supported internally by some of the wall structures, he said. It is going to collapse a portion of it, but it also, but it is also on a pile, if you will, of other walls and other debris on the inside. Economic Development Director Marty Dordery said the city recently made a formal request to Lamb Arts founders 
Russ and Diana Woolley to provide a report on the building's structural condition. In October 2017, the City Council approved a $350,000 economic development loan to Lamb Arts to purchase the building. It is a significant issue, so we are waiting to hear back from them on that. We should see some information on that very soon, Daughtery said. It's their building. We have an agreement and a loan, but we also make sure that buildings are safe. Diana Woolley told the journal, Lamb Arts is trying to keep everything quiet concerning the project. She said things will start happening very soon. She said, we are in a kind of a funny spot. We're looking at everything, looking at all of our options right now. We're working daily on this. We have a developer from Omaha that we're working with. We've got a campaign guru that's helping us with funding and all that sort of thing. We've got some incredibly beautiful plans drawn up. The Woolies pre previously told the council, Lamb Arts has raised a substantial portion of its $20 million project goal and made progress towards securing various tax credits, grants, and private contributions. In February 2020, the council approved an ordinance designating the auditorium as a local landmark, which made it eligible for state historic preservation tax credits. If the auditorium can't be salvaged and Lamb Arts has to build a new theater from the ground up, the project would no longer be a contender for those tax credits. Since the loan was granted to Lamb Arts, the City Council has approved three repayment extensions. The first two extensions in 2018 and 2020 were two-year extensions. The most recent extension, a one-year extension, ended October 22, 2023. The Woolies, however, have not repaid the $350,000 loan from the City, which is secured by a mortgage on the property, according to Dottery. The city could take legal action on the mortgage, but Dottery said the city continues to work with the Woolies. He said the council has not formally approved another loan repayment extension for the auditorium. Lamb Arts has leased the former Webster Street at 417 Market Street, I'm, I'm sorry, Webster School at 417 Market Street from the city for more than 30 years. They're changing their plans a little bit. We've been meeting with them, talking to them, and waiting for them to make a proposal as to how they're going to move forward, he said of the Woolies. Diana Woolley initially called the partial roof collapse a wonderful happenstance. She said in July it would allow Lamb Arts to add a full fly system or theatrical rigging system in what would be Gilchrist Theater, one of three theaters planned for the auditorium. We're going to go into the ceiling further up so that will have a full fly system, which is awesome, Woolley said at that time. It was lemons at first, and now it's lemonade. Lamb Arts purchased the auditorium from Lois Archer Dunbar for $400,000 in November 2017, according to the Sioux City Assessor's website. Roughly two years after the sale of the auditorium to Lamb Arts, Harkey Development purchased the Benson Building for $350,000 from Warnock Development. Nelson Construction and Development is redeveloping the Benson Building as Harkey Development. The six-story brick and terracotta structure is being transformed into commercial spaces and luxury apartments. With the Benson Building slated to open in April, Nelson is not only concerned about the structural integrity of the former auditorium, but how the site of the partially collapsed roof, which is visible from the fifth and sixth floors of the Benson Building south side, could negatively impact his investment. They were going to restore that building to its historical period of significance and do a historical improvement, which was part of my consideration when I bought the Benson building, he said.
Four years later, as I'm finishing, their building is dilapidating and falling in. Nelson said the apartments on the Benson Building's fifth and sixth floors have the greatest view of the city. However, as things currently stand, tenants of the building's south side would be looking down onto the auditorium's collapsed roof. They're looking right down onto a building that the roof has collapsed. You can see clear to the floor, Nelson said. It hurts me. Dottery said people have asked him if the city is going to take back the auditorium from Lam Arts. No, he said, we never owned it. They bought it from the longtime owners. Regardless of whether a red tag building is owned by the city or a private person, Bullock said safety is the main concern. If the city ends up demolishing the building, Bullock said the Iowa DNR would be involved in the demolition. There's a process where you demolish it with asbestos containing material in it. There are precautions that you take so it doesn't become friable and airborne. It's a different type of demolition process when you would go through the demol to demolish that structure, he said. Anytime you see a historic building that's gone that far into decay, it's kind of sad that you're going to lose it, but safety first. Boyden Home Destroyed by Fire a home near Boyden was completely destroyed in a fire Sunday. The Sioux County Sheriff's Office said in a statement that 911 dispatchers received a report of garage fire at 3420 Kennedy Avenue at 1228 p.m. The residence is just over two miles south of Boyden. Upon arrival, the Boyden Fire Department found a two-stall garage which was attached to the home on fire. They requested mutual aid from area firefighters. The firefighters used roughly 11,000 gallons of water to fight the fire. The fire quickly spread into the attic of the house and department members fought the fire from outside the house. Eventually, fire, firefighters were able to get inside and get the fire completely extinguished, the statement said. The house was deemed a total loss. The cause of the fire remains under investigation. The Boyden Fire Department and Boyden Ambulance were assisted by Sheldon Fire Department, Hull Fire Department, and the Sioux County Sheriff's Office. Man sentenced for passing fake checks in Sioux City. A Council Bluffs man has been sentenced to prison for writing fake checks and gaining more than $7,700 in cash from Sioux City banks. A second Council Bluff's man was placed on probation for taking part in the scheme. Nicholas Rounds, 26, pleaded guilty Friday in Woodbury County District Court to single counts, forgery, and second-degree theft. District Judge Zachary Henman sentenced him in accordance with a plea agreement to five years in prison. Dwayne Long, 46, was found guilty by jury in November of two counts of forgery and one count of second-degree theft. District Judge Todd Deck on Friday suspended a five-year prison sentence and placed him on two years probation. Rounds was arrested in August and charged with presenting a check for $3,770.55 from Rhinewerk Truck Line to Prime Bank at 5680 Sunnybrook Drive on July 12th and receiving cash. He then went to Prime Bank's Hamilton Boulevard location, presented a similar check, and received $3,970.55 in cash. Long cashed a check from Rhinewerk for $3,888 at the Sunnybrook Prime Bank branch on July 12th. In all cases, the checks had not been issued by Rhinewerk Truck Line, but had been forged with the company's account information and the bookkeeper's signature. Both men were ordered to pay restitution to Prime Bank for the money they received. Together, they must pay $775 to Rhinewerk. Long was ordered to pay an additional $5,423 to Rhinewerk. 
Man sentenced to 40 years of sex for sex abuse. Storm Lake. A Minnesota man was sentenced Monday to 40 years in prison for sexually abusing a young girl in Storm Lake. Ka Toll, 42 of St. Paul, entered an Alford plea in Buena Vista County District Court in November to charges of second-degree sexual abuse, uh, incest. In an Alford plea, a defendant admits no guilt, and the judge enters a guilty plea into the record. Toll must serve 17.5 years before he's eligible for parole. He also will be required to register with the Iowa Sex Offender Registry, and District Judge Charles Borth ordered him to serve a lifetime special sex offender sentence after he completes his prison sentence. If he were to violate terms of the special sentence, he could be sent back to prison. Charges of second-degree sexual abuse, child endangerment, and two counts of indecent contact with a child were dismissed as part of a plea agreement. St. Paul authorities notified Storm Lake Police in April of a report of sexual abuse alleged to have occurred in Storm Lake. Police investigated the accusations and arrested Toe in June when he turned himself in to Storm Lake Police. Toe had sexual contact with the girl numerous times in a Storm Lake home between January 2019 and March 2020. Bob Rowe, owner and namesake of Bob Rowe's Point After, dies. Sioux City. Bob Rowe, philanthropist and owner of Bob Rowe's Point After, died Monday. His death was confirmed Monday by a family friend in a social media post by the restaurant. A local legend has passed today. He was hardworking, kind, and charitable, Bob Rose Point After said in his social media post. He always gave back to our community. He has touched the lives of many and has left the world a better place. Rhonda Capron remembered Bob Rowe as a Sioux City icon. Bob is Sioux City. That's who we want Sioux City to be like, said Capron, a friend of Rose and former Sioux City Council member. Rowe, 85, was widely known and beloved in the community for his restaurants as well as his sports philanthropy. Capron said, Bob has been steadfast in this whole community. He was a pillar of the community and he's going to leave a lasting impression. He was just a generous soul that did everything for the good of the community. Robert L. Rowe was born April 3, 1938 to Ori M. Rowe and Geneva Alice Rowe. He grew up in their home on South Lemon Street in the Morningside neighborhood where he was a fixture for much of his life. Sioux City Mayor Bob Scott said he was just a unique individual who cared a whole lot about this community. Rowe began working for his family's business, the Rowe Dairy Company, at the age of 10. He graduated from East High School and attended South Dakota State University for two years before transferring to Morningside College to finish his degree. Rowe married Karen Clavino on June 17, 1961. They had three children. Capron said he loved his family more than anything. Rowe was the proprietor of two Sioux City bars and restaurants that bear his name, Bob Rose Point After and Bob Rose North End Zone. The Point After has been the place where good times gather since 1982. It originally started out in Cecilia Park before relocating to Transit Plaza. The restaurant offers a comfort food menu that includes pizza, burgers, chicken, and ribs. Famous athletes, a U.S. president, and at least three generations of Sioux Cityans have dined at the restaurant. Rose said in 2016, You see, we've always been more of a family restaurant than a bar. Folks can bring in their kids and not worry about anything. 
Rowe and his wife opened their first pizzeria, Westside Pizza, on March 13, 1977. It is currently owned and operated by their daughter, Terry. He said after visiting a chain pizza restaurant with his family, there was a market for pizza in Sioux City. He opened Westside Pizza in one of the only buildings he still owned from the former Rowe Dairy family business. Rose said in 2017, At first, it was just Karen and one employee making pizzas while I made the deliveries. Rose said the pair learned what worked and what didn't before opening Point After. Rose's grandson, Jason and Jeremy Hauser, managed North End Zone. With Bob Rowe as our grandpa, we learned how to make pizza and we learned how to make wings at a very early age, Hauser said in 2016. Bob Rowe's Point After has taken home numerous first place awards in the Siouxland's Choice Awards and has placed in the, uh, the top three in various categories over the years. The famous Bob Rose pizza and buffalo wings were fan favorites made with original recipes. Rowe was also known for his volunteer and philanthropic efforts. Capron said, there's a lot of things that Bob did in this community that people did not even realize he did. He did not want recognition. He did it because of his heart. Rowe was elected to the Greater Siouxland Athletic Association's Hall of Fame as an athletic supporter. In 2021, a street was named after Rowe. Bob Rowe Way is located along Vine Avenue between Transit Avenue and South Lynn Street, next to Bob Rowe's Point After. He has been the icon of Sioux City for over 50 years, if not longer. He has touched everybody's heart one way or another in this town, Capron said. He's just the most generous person I know. Since Sioux City became the home of the NAIA Division II Women's Basketball National Championship Tournament, Bob Rose has adopted one team each year, bringing it in for pizza and fun. Bob was past president of the local chapter of SABRE and the past president of the Transit Avenue Center Association. He was a member of the Morningside Masonic Lodge for over 50 years, as well as a member of the Scottish Rite and the Abu Bakr Shrine. The Boys and Girls Club of Siouxland was one of Rowe's biggest passions. He served on the board and was involved in their annual Emory Johnson auction since 1973. Scott said, there's hardly anything Bob wasn't involved in. Bob was always the behind-the-scenes guy, making sure kids had Christmas presents, making sure kids could go to baseball games. He wanted to make sure kids had opportunities in this community. Rowe sponsored countless local community organizations and activities, including First Tea, Sioux City Bandits, Siouxland Food Bank, Sioux City Relay, Sioux City Explorers, Sioux City Musketeers, Sioux City Metros, United Way, Siouxland Center for Active Generations, United Way, Boys and Girls Home, and many more. He founded and operated the Not Whole Gang, a group of businesses that purchase Sioux City Explorer tickets and donate them to local nonprofit organizations. Rowe won numerous awards throughout the years, including the Boys Club Distinguished Service Award in 1995, the Girls Club Volunteer of the Year in 1994, Floyd Slow Pitch Sponsor of the Year in 1994, Hero of the Year Morningside Mass Communications in 1992, and more. We now move to the Tuesday regular column, Five Questions With, and today it's the uh, pet spa owner, Jaylene Quicken. And that last name is spelled K-U-I-K-E-N. North Sioux City. Have you ever hung a child's report card on your fridge or placed a child's school photo inside a scrapbook? Now substitute the word child with pet 
And no, we're not kidding. At the Dogwood Pet Hotel and Day Spa, four-legged fur children take part in back-to-school school photo days, pool party days, and the recently completed Winter Games Day. We even created an entire burn book a la Mean Girls, Dogwood owner Jolene Quicken explained. But, not, but in our case, this is a bark book. Okay, it seems like having a sense of humor is required for owning what is described as a 30,000 square foot luxury pet hotel. Nestled on 12 acres of land with 6,000 square feet of indoor space and more than two acres worth of outdoor space, the 1200 North Shore Drive facility has been around uh, since 2011. However, Quicken purchased the business more than two years ago. I've always loved animals, but didn't want to go down the veterinarian route, she said. Managing a high-end kennel with plenty of amenities seemed like it would be more fun. The first question, what type of person would board a dog inside a doggy day spa? The answer, there really isn't a specific kind of person. Instead, our clients tend to come from households where both pet parents work. They either don't want or can't have their dog home alone all day or the pet parents may need to go out of town for an extended time. Then their dogs become our pet boarders. And then uh, next question, you take care of more than just dogs, right? Absolutely, we have dogs, cats, rabbits, even hedgehogs as guests. Next question, it seems like people are treating pets more than just animals. They're becoming more like family members. And she says, pets really are like family members. They're given special diets and plenty of opportunities to socialize with both people and other animals. Pets occupy a special place in our hearts. Are we spoiling them? Well, there's nothing wrong with a bit of spoiling. Uh, I imagine being cooped up at home isn't very good for dogs. Is that one of the reasons why a pet day spa has grown in popularity? It is. Dogs and others need plenty of physical activities. That's why we have supervised playtime. Yet animals also need intellectual stimulation, like with toys and puzzles that, that require them to think. And the last question, what is your goal at Dogwood? We employ a professional trained staff with one thing in mind. We will treat your pets in the most loving manner while treating them as if they were our own. Pets give us so much love, uh, we want to return the favor to them. And then if you want to use their services, it's called the Dogwood Pet Hotel and Day Spa. They're at 1200 North Shore Drive in North Sioux City, and their phone number is 605-232-3647. Radid enters Woodbury County Auditor Race. Woodbury County Supervisor Keith Raddick has entered the race for Woodbury County Auditor, Recorder, and Commissioner of Election. Raddick is the third person to announce a run for the position, following current Auditor Pat Gill and Deputy Auditor Michelle Scaff. Raddick currently serves as a District 1 Supervisor with this term set to expire this year. His running as a Republican, meaning he will face Scaff in a primary. He said the auditor seems like a good fit. That's the person that certifies the budget to the state, and it's a role of overseeing budgets that I've always liked, as well as overseeing elections. The auditor oversees budgets for all governmental entities, insurance policies and surety bonds, alcohol and tobacco licenses, and payroll. The auditor is also the clerk to the Board of Supervisors. The recorder oversees vital records, lands and records management, and real estate departments. Raddick began his aim on elective office in 2002, running unsuccessfully for an Iowa House seat. 
Later, he won terms on the city council in 2009 and 2013. He stepped down with a year left on his second term after he was elected to the Board of Supervisors in 2016. He was re-elected to the Supervisors in 2020. He said, I have a track record of being out there, going in the neighborhoods, door to door, talking to voters, talking to people in Sioux City, talking to people in Woodbury County. I have been involved and people know me and what I say is what I do. Raddick said he believes in term limits and feels that he will be able to bring new ideas to the auditor's office. He said over the last 15 years, he has served in a variety of roles, giving a variety of experiences to the role. When he, he also said, when you look at other areas in the state, the auditors do quite a bit more than what's done in Woodbury County. I'll be somebody that will try to streamline the responsibilities within the courthouse itself. The candidate filing period for county offices is March 4th through March 22nd for the primary. The primary will take place June 4th with a general election scheduled for November 5th. State requests jail time for ex Sioux City. Because of his past career and training as a law enforcement officer, Bradley Ector should spend time in jail for resisting sheriff's deputies who responded to his home to a report of domestic dispute, a prosecutor said on Monday. Plymouth County Attorney Darren Raymond said Ector's actions during his September 29th arrest were aggravating factors and warrant at least 15 days in jail. Ector's lawyer said he's already been punished by losing his career and having a private family dispute made public. A Sioux City police officer at the time, Ector, 50, was initially charged with the domestic assault and pleaded guilty on January 4th to reduce charges of assault and interference with official acts, both simple misdemeanors. Raymond, who was appointed to the case after the Woodbury County Attorney's Office requested a special prosecutor because Ector had investigated several pending cases, submitted a 50-minute audio recording taken from Ector's phone that he said gives insight into the argument between Ector and his wife. Ector's attorney, Roseanne Leinhard, asked District Associate Judge Mark Cord for a deferred judgment on each charge, saying Ector, who was placed on administrative leave after his arrest and later resigned during a department internal investigation, has had trouble finding a job and a private family matter has been made public. He's paid his pound of flesh, Leinhard said. Ector told Cord the case has been a huge misunderstanding and investigators ignored his wife's pleas to explain what happened. His family is ready to move on. I do feel I've learned a lesson in this matter, he said. Ector faces up to 30 days in jail and a maximum fine of $855 on each charge. Cord said he wanted to watch the video before deciding upon a sentence and would file a sentencing order by week's end. According to court documents, Ector's wife came to a neighbor's home with scratches on her arms and told the resident she was scared and couldn't call police because her husband had her phone. She then returned home. When Woodbury County Sheriff's deputies arrived at the Ector's rural Sergeant Bluff home, they encountered Ector at the front door, and he was argumentative, uncooperative, and pulled away and resisted while they tried to keep him from re-entering the home. Two deputies received minor scrapes on their hands. Ector's wife had a scratch on her left elbow, a cut on her left thumb, marks on her right forearm, a scratch and bruising on her right wrist, and pain in her neck and left elbow, court documents said. In his guilty pleas, Ector admitted resisting or obstructing one or more deputies and that he did an act which was intended to cause pain or injury to his wife or resulted in physical contact or placed her in fear of physical contact. Ragbri 2024 Route 
unveiled. The route for the 2024 version of the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride across Iowa will be taking a southerly turn this summer. According to an announcement Saturday night at the Iowa Event Center, the 51st annual ride will begin in Glenwood, Iowa and Keg Creek, a Missouri River tributary, and end in Burlington on the Mississippi River. Saturday's Ragbri route reveal also named the overnight stops, which will include Red Oak, Atlantic, Winterset, Knoxville, Ottumwa, and Mount Pleasant. It's a small town heavy route, with only Ottumwa and Burlington having more than 10,000 residents. Rank by 2024 will take place from Sunday, July 21st through Saturday, July 27th. The route crossing Iowa will total 424 miles, one of the shortest routes on record. Last year's route started in Sioux City and ended in Davenport. The crowd peaked on the fourth day of the ride last year between Ames and Des Moines with an estimated 60,000 people. Organizers are expecting attendance this year to roughly equal or slightly surpass that. On the first leg of that year's ride, an estimated 30,000 riders, including unregistered ones, made the journey from Sergeant Bluff to Ida Grove. The last time Ragbride didn't pass through Siouxland was in 2019, when the starting point was in Council Bluffs. This year's route will have 18,737 feet of climb, quite a bit more than last year's, 16,549 feet of climb. It will be by far the hilliest Ragbri on record. There's going to be a lot of hills. I can't stress that enough, Ragbri Ride Director Matt Fiffman said in a statement. If you ride your bicycle and train, you're going to be in a good spot. The route and roads the ride will travel are still being finalized. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 30th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to the obituaries for today. Beginning with Lois June Pearson, 98, formerly of Sioux City, passed away Monday, January 8th at home. Lois was born at home to H.W. and Sophia Pole Rep in Riverside. She attended schools there and St. Paul Lutheran School and Church. Lois graduated from Central High School in 1943. As a young adult, she was employed by Western Union in San Francisco and Chicago. After returning home, she worked for Dr. Ashmore. She met her future husband when he came in for an appointment. They were married June 21, 1952. He preceded her in death January 6, 2015. Lois was a member of Riverside Lutheran Church and the Quilters Group before they moved to Colorado Springs in 2008 to be closer to their daughters. She was a member of Faith Lutheran Church in Colorado Springs where her service will be held on January 27th. She was a devout Christian her whole life. Dean O. Dunn 93 of Merrill, passed away on Friday, January 26, in Sioux City. A celebration of life service will take place at 11 a.m. on Wednesday, January 31st, at St. John's Lutheran Church in Lamars. Visitation will begin at 2 p.m. on Tuesday, January 30th, at the Mauer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. The family will be present from 5 to 7 with a prayer service at 7. There will also be an hour of visitation at the church prior to the service on Wednesday. Kenneth R. Alderson, Jr., 64, of Sioux City, passed away surrounded by his family on January 25th. A celebration of life will be held at 2 p.m. Saturday, February 3rd at New Freedom Church, 423 George Street, in Sioux City. 
Arrangements are under the direction of Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Dennis M. Davenport, 72, of South Sioux City, passed away Friday, January 26. Private family service to be held at a later date. Moore and Becker Hunt handling the arrangements. Richard E. Lance, 71, of South Sioux City, died Sunday, January 28th. Memorial service at 7 p.m. on Thursday, January, uh, February 1st. Visitation will be at 6 p.m., both at Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home. Mary Ellen Fulton, 85, of Lamars, passed away on Saturday, January 27th at Floyd Valley Healthcare in Lamars. Massive Christian burial will take place at 11 a.m. on Friday, February 2nd at All Saints Catholic Parish, St. Joseph Church in Lamars. Burial will follow at Calvary Cemetery in Lamars. Visitation will begin at 2 p.m. on Thursday, February 1st at St. Joseph Church. The family will be present from 5 to 7 p.m. with a rosary at 5.30 p.m. and a scriptural prayer service at 7 p.m. The Maurer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars is assisting Mary's family with arrangements. Dusty Shapley, 67, Sioux City passed away January 11th. No services are planned. Patricia Pat Schwarz, 74, of Kingsley, died Sunday, January 28th at Hillcrest Healthcare Center. Graveside services will be held at 11 a.m. Wednesday, January 31st at Kingsley. Road Funeral Home Kingsley is handling funeral arrangements. And that completes the obituaries for today. We'll now move to the sports section uh, on our first stories about the Sioux City Musketeers. The Sioux City Musketeers went 2-1, playing three games over three days in two different cities over the weekend. Sioux City took on a two-game series over Green Bay on Friday and Saturday, then lost a USHL Western Division contest in Cedar Rapids on Sunday. Even with the loss, the Muskies put further distance between themselves and the field for second place in the US, USHL's Western Division. The Muskies won at Green Bay's re Resch Center by 6-4 final on Friday and a 5-4 shootout win over the Gamblers on Saturday before coming short against the Rough Riders at Emon Ice Arena in Cedar Rapids. After Sioux Falls split two overtime games against Dubuque on Thursday and Friday, the Musketeers hold a 14-point advantage over the Stampede for second behind Fargo in the division. Both Sioux City and Fargo have played 38 games while Sioux Falls has played 39. In the Muskies' dramatic shootout win on Saturday, defenseman Finn Lotus scores the decisive goal in the shootout session. Sioux City scored three goals in the third period to pull even with Green Bay. Caden Shahan, Sam Court, and Easton Jacobs all scored in the third. Shahan's goal came 31 seconds into the period. He was assisted by Ethan Gardula and Ty Hansen. Court put one into the net eight minutes later, assisted by Tate Pritchard, and Jacobs evened it at four with less than 50 seconds left after Green Bay's William Hughes scored to give the Gamblers a 4-3 with just over four minutes remaining. Jacobs was assisted by Shahan and Nichols, Hughes by Ryan Humphrey. Sioux City's Colby Saganuk and Green Bay's Mayuko Danila both scored in the opening minutes of the game as the sides went into the second tied 1-1. The Gamblers scored twice in the second on goals by Julian Luntz and Lieber Nemec. Brian Nichols opened the shootout with a goal, but Green Bay pulled even with a score by Lev Nekatsen. Sioux City goaltender uh, Dylan Silverstein made 
17 saves on 21 shots. On Friday, Samuel Urban was in goal for the Muskies and saved 22 of 26 shots faced as Sioux City scored two goals in each period in Green Bay. Tate Pritchard was assisted by Court and Saganook as the Muskies took a 1-0 lead with a power play score. Pritchard scored again three minutes later to put the Muskies up 2-0 on a goal assisted by Colin Kessler and Riley Buick. Shahan and Liam Hupka assisted on a Kessler goal to open the second period scoring. After Green Bay got on the board with a goal by Jason Shagabal's score, Ethan Gardio put Sioux City up 4-1 on a score assisted by Shahan and Ty Hansen. Danilov set up a Katzkin score to pull Green Bay to 4-2 by the end of the third, but Kessler put home a Bruick pass for another Sioux City score, and Loftus would ice it with a goal off a Nichols assist. Green Bay would add goals by Shagabi and Katzen, but it proved to be too little, too late. On Sunday, Cedar Rapids scored three times in the third to pull out the home win. Sioux City got out to a 2-0 lead by goals by Ethan Strand and Shahan. Riley Basson got the Rough Riders on the board with an unassisted goal with five minutes left in the second. Sioux City would get one more with seconds left in the period, though, as Kessler put the Muskies up 3-1 as he was assisted by Bruick and Hupka. All three Cedar Rapids third period scores came less than halfway through the frame. Landon Resendez started the run with a goal five and a half minutes in, and Ryan O'Connell scored 20 seconds later on an assist by Nico Tourist and Colin Grabble. Aiden Welsh closed it out with a score on an assist by Amini Hajibi. We'll now go to high school sports and we'll begin with boys wrestling. When Cale Morrow was a freshman, he won a tournament title at Kingsley Pearson High School's Crush Invitational by beating Jaden Fredericks. Morrow got his 24th career win by Fredericks that day in the 106-pound championship bout. Fredericks was at Sioux City East then. Now, the two do battle daily as their teammates on the Akron-Westfield High School wrestling team, a top 10 ranked tournament team in Class 1A. Jaden and I have been wrestling each other our whole lives, said Morrow, a number four ranked 120 pounder. We push each other a lot. So when I found out he was coming to Akron, I knew we were going to make each other better. Ever since he came last year, we've kept pushing each other. It gets a little rowdy in the room sometimes, but it always ends up being for the best. It's all about bringing out the best in the other guy. And fresh off winning the 120 weight class at the most recent Crosh Invitational, Morrow collected career win number 150 in the process and credits Fredericks for helping him get there. It wasn't anything I expected to accomplish necessarily, said Morrow, a Mankato State recruit, but it shows where I'm at at the level I'm at compared to other wrestlers. It's a good achievement. In the team score, Morrow and Fredericks ranked fourth at 132, helped Akron-Westfield to a third-place finish with 145 team points. Hinton was the top team at attendance with 240 points, and Lamars was runner-up in the 10-team field at 172. In winning the 144-pound division, ninth-ranked junior Mark Gant, not only his Blackhawks win the team trophy, but Gant also hit a milestone at the tournament as he turned in career win number 100. 
At 157, Broken Lake also finished atop the field for Hinton, as did 175-pounder Gabe Anderson, who's ranked 12th in 1A. Hinton also got second-place finishes from 113-pounder Evan Stahl and 165-pounder Jackson Kunkel. Fredericks ended the day second at 132. He lost to West Sioux junior Jesse Lewis, the top-ranked 126-pounder in 1A, in a matchup of the top four ranked opponents. Like Morrow, Lewis, a first-year West Sioux grappler, credits a newfound sparring partner for helping him get to where he is. Lewis, who won a Nebraska State Championship at 106 as a freshman at Norfolk, found his running mate in West Sioux's Dustin Van Oort. In the 132 title match, Lewis defeated Fredericks, the number four ranked 132-pounder, by a 12-5 decision. Lewis said, we just walk in the room every day wanting to prove that nobody wants it as bad as us. It was fun. I came to wrestle and kept a good mindset. If I lose, I lose, but I'm going to give it my all. I just go out there and wrestle and look for some good matches. Now we'll go back and see what I need to work on in order to get to the state tournament. From here, it's about peaking at the right moment. For his part, Van Oort won the 138-pound class with four pin falls. Only Van Oort's championship match against MMCRU's Gage Johnson went, saw the second period. Jesse and I are practice partners every day, said Van Oort. We have a culture of, making, of working hard at West Sioux, and we try to go into practice every day with the mentality that we're going to push each other to get better. I think our whole team does that. Uh, but last year I wasn't able to wrestle the full season, and that makes me want it a little more this year. Sioux City's North Jack Border won the 113-pound weight class. The 25-7 sophomore pinned Hinton Stahl in the championship round. Lamar's had three winners on the day. The Bulldogs junior 126-pounder Brock Heisensus pinned West Sioux's Reed Persinger in 3 minutes 31 seconds in the final. Hessensu's teammate, senior Keegan Kaiser, was victorious against the field at 150. Kaiser used a reversal in the opening seconds to record a 7-5 win over Ridgeview's 12th-ranked Connor Jacobson for the tournament title. At 190, Lamar senior Camden Fuerhelm handed Ridgeview's Blake Murtu his first loss of the season as Murtu fell by 8-4 decision in the championship. We'll now move from boys wrestling to girls wrestling. Jaina Tarui not only wanted to get back to the IGHSAU Girls State Individual Wrestling Tournament, but she wanted more teammates to tag along. Mission accomplished to Tarui and the West Lion Girls Wrestling Team. She said, I'm just ecstatic to be going back as a senior and have teammates going with. We had two last year, so to have three and get to spend my last week as a senior wrestler with two teammates, I'm just over the moon. It meant a lot for us to be a sanctioned sport now. It meant the state was acknowledging us, and we've seen so much growth from around the state. It's just been amazing. Turwee will be joined at state by returning state qualifier Eliana Koi and Kian Blomgren. The top-ranked wrestler in 190-pound weight class, the West Lions senior, recorded three first-period pins to take the regional final and punch a ticket to the state tournament, which commences on Thursday at Extreme Arena in Coralville. 
Therese said, wrestling pushes me as a person. I don't think I'd be where I am in life if it weren't for this sport. The things it's done to help me get mentally stronger have helped me in every aspect of life. The stress of the sport teaches you that if you can handle that, you can handle anything. The 190-pound class saw Ellen Gerlach of SWAT finish in second after being pinned by Therese in under a minute in the title bout. Emma DeJong of Boyden Hall Rock Valley was third at 190, and MOC Floyd Valley's Elvira Torpet and Zua was fourth. Lamar saw two winners take titles at the two lightest weights. Lamar's Brooklyn DeRocher moved to 34-6 and punched a ticket to Coralville with a win at 100 pounds, beating SWAT's Jazz Christensen in the finals. Boyden Hall Rock Valley's McKinley Sandbolt took third and will advance, as will fourth place recipient Teresa Philippe Andres of MLC Floyd Valley. At 105, the Bulldogs' Kira Heisenhus was the top wrestler of the field as she defeated trainers Emma Miller in the finals. Sophia Hazen of ATU and Quinn Foster of Highway 34 also moved on. In total, Lamars finished with the region's third best team score with 174 points. Lewis Central had the most team points with 205.5 and SWAT was second at 203 with the Bulldogs in third with the 174 points. Highway 34 and Boyden Hall Rock Valley rounded out the top five. The 110-pound field saw Hinton's first girls wrestler advance to state. The program's inaugural season will place Allison Huffling at the state after she took third place behind winner Grace Hoffman of Cooper Catholic and runner-up Maddie McCoy of Southwest Valley. Huffling beat Clarinda's Cabri Gordon for third place. Both will advance to state. Like Huffling, West Lyons Blomgren took third place. She wrestled at 115. Riverside's Carly Henderson won the weight, and GTRA's Trista Gwynn was second. Blomgren beat Randy Welshens of Clorinda in the Constellation Finals. Blomgren said, I'm just very glad to have gotten this experience. Going to state is like nothing I've ever done before. It's very much of a mindset sport. It's crazy how much that matters. It doesn't really matter sometimes how your body feels. If your mindset is right, you can push through. Lamar's continued its run of lightweight qualifiers at 120 with Britt Hessenhuis took second. Avea Smith of Lewis Central won the 120 class. Cooper Catholic Sadie Smith was third, and Riverside's Veronica Schleichinger was fourth. We'll now move to high school basketball. The Sioux City East High School boys basketball team was among the biggest risers in the latest IHSAA rankings. In the previous poll, the Black Raiders were ranked 10th in Class 4A, but East now checks in 4th in 4A after a week that saw the Black Raiders go 3-0 with Missouri River Athletic Conference wins over Council Bluffs Abraham Lincoln and Sioux City West, as well as a non-conference victory over new number 5 Waukee, who was ranked 3rd before the Black Raiders won on Saturday. After trailing at halftime, 37-35, East owned the second half as it won the third quarter by a 13-5 margin and took the fourth, 20-11. Fitzy Grant led the Black Raiders with 25 points. Manasi Kanzango Malu had 13. Grant leads East in scoring this season at over 15 points per game. Kanzango Malu and 
Bila Yusuf also averaged double figures for the Black Raiders. Sulan boasts both of the top two teams in Class 2A, where undefeated West Lion remains at the top of the field with rest Western Christian second. West Lion beat 3A-ranked MLC Floyd Valley last Tuesday in Siouxland Conference play. The Wildcats also beat Rock Valley and previously ranked Central Lion to cap the week. Against the Dutch, Carson Hugeven led the way with a game-high 24 points on 10 of 15 shooting from the field. He also had 5 assists and 4 rebounds. Easton Jacobson added 19 points. In Class 3A, MOC Floyd Valley ranks 9th. The Dutch were previously ranked 7th, but the Dutch recovered after it dropped its game against 2A top-ranked West Lion to beat Sioux Center in conference play. Jesse Van Kalsbeek scored a game-high 17 points with 9 rebounds against Sioux Center. Amon Langton had, nine, had 16 points and 4 assists, and Owen Vanderpool went for 15 points. Bishop Helam dropped out of the 3A rankings after going 2-1 for the week and 2-2 since the last rankings. The Crusaders lost to Norris, Nebraska at Creighton Sokol Arena, then won two straight MRAC games over Lamars and Sergeant Bluff Luton before taking another non-conference loss on Saturday as they lost to Western Christian. In Class 1A, Remsen St. Mary's fell out of after suffering a last-second loss to South O'Brien at home on Thursday, although the Hawks' week did include wins over Harris Lake Park and Galen Catholic. Healand-Westwood remained highest-ranked area girls' teams. Uh, so now we're moving to girls' basketball. The newest IGHSAU girls' basketball rankings were released last Thursday after Class 3A No. 7 Lamars knocked 3A No. 3 Healand from the ranks of the unbeaten on Tuesday. Though in the rankings, both teams remained steady in the rankings from the week prior. The Bulldogs also beat Council Bluffs Lincoln last week. Against Healand, Zoe Whitcup led Lamars with 13 points. Meta Skov and Sarah Brown each finished with 10 points. With regional assignments around the corner, the win may have been enough to earn the Bulldogs the right to host a region, which the top eight usually do. Helen ended the week with wins over Sergeant Bluff Luton and Western Christian. In Class 2A, number 3 Westwood remains unbeaten and is a virtual lock to serve as a regional host. The Rebels beat MVACOUC and Woodbury Central last week. Class 2A is loaded with area teams as Sioux Central checks in fourth. Central Lion is seventh and Hinton eleventh. In two games last week, Sioux Central beat Alta Aurelia and East Sac County by a combined margin of 134-53. to Central Lion scared, scored a pair of wins by outscoring Borden, Boyden Hall and West Lion by a combined score of 99-72. Hinton scored three wins last week over Harris Lake Park, George Little Rock, and Hartley Mel Melvin Sanborn. In 1A, Remsen St. Mary stayed at number 4 and George Little Rock entered the rankings at number 15. Sioux City East and Sioux City West appear in the 5A rankings. East comes in at number 12 and West at number 15. The Black Raiders beat the Wolverines last Tuesday. East also beat MRAC games over Council Bluffs Lincoln and Council Bluffs Jefferson. West scored a MRAC win over North last Friday, but dropped a Saturday non-conference game at number 10 Waukee Northwest. We'll now move to Dear Abby in our first letter. Dear Abby, I am the father of an adult son, Kirk, 
who is in a relationship with a younger woman who has a young child. Neither is well-educated, but they both have decent jobs. Kirk has a teenage daughter who is getting ready for college in another state. They are close, although I'm not sure to what degree he supports her financially. I have saved some money for her college, but he has not. Kirk never married her mom. My concern has been that my son and his girlfriend might be trying to have a baby. When she he told me she is pregnant, I was beyond livid and let him know what a mistake this was. I told Kirk he owns nothing and nor does she and asked what the baby has to look forward to. His girlfriend receives no support from her child's father. My son has now stopped talking to me. Is this my fault? I spoke what I believed was in the best interest of all parties involved, financially and morally. Signed, sees a mistake in Florida. And Abby responds, Sometimes, before we speak, it is wise to ask ourselves, Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it kind? Where your com comment was true, the girlfriend is already pregnant. Financially, Kirk will be on the hook until his second child becomes an adult, whether or not he marries the mother. So I'm thinking what you said was neither helpful nor kind. If you want a relationship with your son, it may be time to apologize. Dear Abby, I am a lesbian who has been in a relationship for a year and a half. My partner was with men the majority of her life. One of her last exes is someone she now calls her best friend. She talks with and texts him every day. I now have trust issues with them because of something I saw four months ago. I love a lot about her, except she's not very affectionate with me, and I need that. I knew when I was first getting involved with her that he was going to be in her life. They have no children tying them together, but we all go kayaking often. Although I'm not comfortable with it, she has given me no choice if I want to kayak with her. She also hides things from me, like when she buys him gifts. How do I handle the jealousy I feel for him? I can't stand to be around him because I know in my gut there is deception, but I don't want to lose all the good I have with her. Signed, Three's a Crowd in Virginia. And the reply, what does all the good you have with her entail? What I gather from your letter is that you have spent a year and a half with someone who is bisexual, whom you don't completely trust, and who makes you feel like a third wheel. From where I sit, your jealousy is justified. Three in a relationship is awfully crowded, unless it's by mutual agreement. If you haven't talked to her about your feelings, you should. And if you can't arrive at a resolution, end your suffering and move on. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 30th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org at any time. And thank you so much for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.